This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Man Alive by G. K. Chesterton Section 1, Part 1, The Enigmas of Innocent Smith Chapter 1, How the Great Wind Came to Beacon House Part 1 a wind sprang high in the west like a wave of unreasonable happiness and tore eastward across england trailing with it the frosty scent of forests and the cold intoxication of the sea in a million holes and corners it refreshed a man like a flagon and astonished him like a blow in the inmost chambers of intricate and embowered houses it woke like a domestic explosion littering the floor with some professor's papers till they seemed as precious as fugitive or blowing out the candle by which a boy reads treasure island and wrapping him in a roaring dark but everywhere it bore drama into undramatic lives and carried the trump of crisis across the world many a harassed mother in a mean backyard had looked at five dwarfish shirts on the clothesline as at some small sick tragedy it was as if she had hanged her five children the wind came, and they were full and kicking as if five fat imps had sprung into them, and far down in her oppressed subconscious she half remembered those coarse comedies of her father's when the elves still dwelt in the homes of men. Many an unnoticed girl in a dank walled garden had tossed herself into the hammock with the same intolerant gesture with which she might have tossed herself into the Thames and that wind rent the waving wall of woods and lifted the hammock like a balloon and showed her shapes of quaint clouds far beyond and pictures of bright villages far below as if she rode heaven in a fairy boat many a dusty clerk or cleric plodding a telescopic road of poplars thought for the hundredth time that they were like the plumes of a hearse when this invisible energy caught and swung and clashed them round his head like a wreath of salutation of seraphic wings. There was in it something more than inspired and authoritative, even than the old wind of the proverb. This was the good wind that blows nobody harm. The flying blast struck London, just where it scales the northern heights, terrace above terrace as precipitous as Edinburgh. It was round about this place that some poet, probably drunk, looked up astonished at all those streets gone skywards, and thinking vaguely of glaciers and roped mountaineers, gave it the name of Swiss Cottage, which it has never been able to shake off. At some stage of those heights a terrace of tall grey houses, mostly empty and almost as desolate as the Grampians, curved round at the western end, so that at the last building a boarding establishment called Beacon House, offered abruptly to the sunset its high, narrow, and towering termination, like the prow of some deserted ship. The ship, however, was not wholly deserted. The proprietor of the boarding house, a Mrs. Duke, was one of those helpless persons against whom fate wars in vain. She smiled vaguely both before and after all her calamities. She was too soft, to be hurt. 
but by the aid or rather under the orders of a strenuous niece she always kept the remains of a clientele mostly of young but listless folks and there were actually five inmates standing disconsolately about the garden when the great gale broke at the base of the terminal tower behind them as the sea bursts against the base of an outstanding cliff all day that hill of houses over london had been domed and sealed up with cold cloud yet three men and two girls had at last found even the grey and chilly garden more tolerable than the black and cheerless interior when the wind came it split the sky and shouldered the cloudland left and right unbarring great clear furnaces of evening gold the burst of light released and burst of air blowing seemed to come almost simultaneously and the wind especially caught everything in a throttling violence the bright short grass lay all one way like a brushed hair every shrub in the garden tugged at its roots like a dog at the collar and strained every leaping leaf after the hunting and exterminating element now and again a twig would snap and fly like a bolt from an arbalist the three men stood stiffly and aslant against the wind as if leaning against a wall the two ladies disappeared into the house rather to speak truly they were blown into the house their two frocks blue and white looked like two big broken flowers driving and drifting upon the gale nor is such a poetic fancy inappropriate for there was something oddly romantic about this inrush of air and light after a long leaden and unlifting day grass and garden trees seemed glittering with something at once good and unnatural like a fire from fairyland it seemed like a strange sunrise the wrong end of the day the girl in white dived in quickly enough for she wore a white hat of the proportions of a parachute which might have wafted her away into the colored clouds of the evening she was their one splash of splendor and irradiated wealth in that impecunious place staying there temporarily with a friend an heiress in a small way by name rosamund hunt brown-eyed round-faced but resolute and rather boisterous on top of her wealth she was good-humoured and rather good-looking but she had not married perhaps because there was always a crowd of men around her she was not fast though some might have called her vulgar but she gave irresolute youths an impression of being at once popular and inaccessible a man felt as if he had fallen in love with cleopatra or as if he were asking for a great actress at the stage door indeed some theatrical spangles seemed to cling about miss hunt she played the guitar and the mandolin she always wanted charades and with that great rending of the sky by sun and storm she felt a girlish melodrama swell within her to the crashing orchestration of the air the clouds rose like the curtain of some long expected pantomime nor oddly was the girl in blue entirely unimpressed by this apocalypse in a private garden though she was one of the most prosaic and practical creatures alive she was indeed no other than the strenuous niece whose strength alone upheld that mansion of decay but as the gale swung and swelled the blue and white skirts till they took on the monstrous contours of victorian crinolines a sunken memory stirred in her that was almost romance a memory of a dusty volume of punch in an aunt's house in infancy pictures of crinoline hoops and croquet hoops and 
some pretty story, of which perhaps they were a part. This half-perceptible fragrance in her thoughts faded almost instantly, and Diana Duke entered the house even more promptly than her companion. Tall, slim, aquiline, and dark, she seemed made for such swiftness. In body she was of the breed of those birds and beasts that are at once long and alert, like greyhounds or herons, or even like an innocent snake. The whole house revolved on her as on a rod of steel. It would be wrong to say that she commanded, for her own efficiency was so impatient that she obeyed herself before anyone else obeyed her. Before electricians could mend a bell or locksmiths open a door, before dentists could pluck a tooth or butlers draw a tight cork, it was done already with the silent violence of her slim hands. She was light, but there was nothing leaping about her lightness. She spurned the ground, and she meant to spurn it. People talk of the pathos and failure of plain women, but it is a more terrible thing that a beautiful woman may succeed in everything but womanhood. "'It is enough to blow your head off,' said the young woman in white, going to the looking-glass. The young woman in blue made no reply, and put away her gardening gloves, and then went to the sideboard and began to spread out an afternoon cloth for tea. "'Enough to blow your head off, I say,' said Miss Rosamond Hunt, with the unruffled cheeriness of one whose songs and speeches had always been safe for an encore. "'Only your hat, I think,' said Diana Duke, "'but I dare say that is sometimes more important.' Rosamond's face showed for an instant the offence of a spoiled child, and then the humour of a very healthy person. She broke into a laugh and said, Well, it would have to be a big wind to blow your head off. There was another silence, and the sunset breaking more and more from the sundering clouds filled the room with soft fire and painted the dull walls with ruby and gold. "'Somebody once told me,' said Rosamond Hunt, "'that it's easier to keep one's head when one has lost one's heart.' "'Oh, don't talk such rubbish,' said Diana, with savage sharpness. Outside, the garden was clad in a golden splendour, but the wind was still stiffly blowing, and the three men who stood their ground might also have considered the problem of hats and heads. And, indeed, their position, touching hats, was somewhat typical of them, the tallest of the three abode the blast in a high silk hat, which the wind seemed to charge as vainly as that other sullen tower, the house behind him. The second man tried to hold on a stiff straw hat at all angles, and ultimately held it in his hand. The third had no hat, and by his attitude seemed never to have had one in his life. Perhaps this wind was a kind of fairy wand to test men and women, for there was much of the three men in this difference. The man in the solid silk hat was the embodiness of silkiness and solidity. He was a big, bland, bored, and, as some said, boring man, with flat, fair hair and handsome, heavy features, a prosperous young doctor by the name of Warner. But if his blondness and blandness seemed at first a little fatuous, it is certain that he was no fool. If Rosamond Hunt was the only person there with much money, he was the only person who had as yet found any kind of fame. His treatise on the probable existence of pain in the lowest organisms had been universally hailed by the scientific world as at once solid and daring. In short, he undoubtedly had brains, and 
Perhaps it was not his fault if they were the kind of brains that most men desire to analyse with a poker. The young man who put his hat off and on was a scientific amateur in a small way, and worshipped the great Warner with a solemn freshness. It was, in fact, at his invitation that the distinguished doctor was present, for Warner lived in no such ramshackle lodging-house, but in a professional palace in Harley Street. This young man was really the youngest and best-looking of the three, but he was one of those persons, both male and female, who seemed doomed to be good-looking and insignificant. Brown-haired, high-coloured, and shy, he seemed to lose the delicacy of his features in a sort of blur of brown and red as he stood blushing and blinking against the wind. He was one of those obvious, unnoticeable people. Everyone knew that he was Arthur Inglewood, unmarried, moral, decidedly intelligent, living on little money of his own, and hiding himself in the two hobbies of photography and cycling. Everybody knew him and forgot him. Even as he stood there in the glare of the golden sunset, there was something about him indistinct, like one of his own red-brown amateur photographs. The third man had no hat. He was lean, in light, vaguely sporting clothes, and the large pipe in his mouth made him look all the leaner. He had a long, ironical face, blue-black hair, the eyes of an Irishman, and the blue chin of an actor. An Irishman he was, an actor he was not, except in the olden days of Miss Hunt's charades, being, as a matter of fact, an obscure and flippant journalist named Michael Moon. He had once been hazily supposed to be reading for the bar, but, as Warner would say with his rather elephantine wit, it was mostly at another kind of bar that his friends found him. Moon, however, did not drink, nor even frequently get drunk. He simply was a gentleman who liked low company. This was partly because company is quieter than society, and if he enjoyed talking to a barmaid, as apparently he did, it was chiefly because the barmaid did the talking. Moreover, he would often bring other talent to assist her. He shared that strange trick of all men of his type, intellectual and without ambition, the trick of going about with his mental inferiors. There was a small, resilient Jew named Moses Gould in the same boarding-house, a man whose negro vitality and vulgarity amused Michael so much that he went round with him from bar to bar like the owner of a performing monkey. The colossal clearance which the wind had made of that cloudy sky grew clearer and clearer. Chamber within chamber seemed to open in heaven. One felt one might at last find something lighter than light. In the fullness of the silent effulgence all things collected their colors again. The grey trunks turned silver, and the drab gravel gold. One bird fluttered like a loosened leaf from one tree to another, and his brown feathers were brushed with fire. Inglewood said Michael Moon, with his blue eyes on the bird, "'Have you any friends?' Dr. Warner mistook the person addressed, and turning a broad, beaming face, said, "'Oh, yes, I go out a great deal.' Michael Moon gave a tragic grin, and waited for his real informant, who spoke a moment after, in a voice curiously cool, fresh, and young, as coming out of that brown and even dusty interior. Really, answered Inglewood, I am afraid I have lost touch with my old friends. The greatest friend I ever had was at school, a fellow named Smith. 
It's odd you should mention it, because I was thinking of him today, though I haven't seen him for seven or eight years. He was on the science side with me at school, a clever fellow, though queer, and he often went up to Oxford when I went to Germany. The fact is, it's rather a sad story. I often asked him to come and see me, and when I heard nothing I made inquiries, you know. I was shocked to learn that poor Smith had gone off his head. The accounts were a bit cloudy, of course, some saying that he had recovered again, but they always say that. About a year ago I got a telegram from him myself. The telegram, I am sorry to say, put the matter beyond a doubt. End of section 1